Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. An Erio's original. Representation is so important. It's so important. I mean, I've told people this, like, before I saw Margaret on television, I didn't think it was possible for me to do stand-up because no one no one looked like me so mm-hmm. how could I ever do this for a living hi I'm Margaret Cho welcome to the Margaret Cho my podcast here's my conversation with Robin Tran who is a comedian that I am obsessed with she's hilarious she's uh, my muse and uh, she's also somebody that I really get to get into uh, Mortal Minorities, which is my uh, little fun thing on this show where we talk about Asian Americans and crime. I have like a chafing issue. Yeah. I feel like I just need a Band-Aid or something between my legs. Do you have chafing? (laughs) What? Do you chafe? Yeah. With like a skirt? Yeah. Yeah. With a skirt or like a a short dress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you think like when you're when you trans when you're transitioning, like do you did you kind of put that into like some thought into like how this is good like a pants is going to feel next to like a dress? But you still wear pants a lot. Well, I do now. When I first came out, I, I didn't think about any of that stuff. I just thought like, oh, this is gonna be weird that I'm gonna start wearing dresses and skirts and stuff at open mics. Mm-hmm. I just thought about how like a lot of my comic friends, like comedian friends, unfollowed me on Facebook because I'm unsufferable on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, they're going to be shocked when they see me. Like, they don't know that I, because I came out on Facebook. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so that was most of what was going through my mind. Mm-hmm. Why do you say unsufferable? Oh, I, I used to just post like 50 statuses a day about politics and stuff. This is before I was medicated. Well, I mean, I think all of that is, is really important to do, too. I mean, it, I don't have Facebook, so I don't really know. Yeah. But um, I think. That that's a place where you do it, right? You know, where you have to have to talk about what's happening in the world. Yeah, I stopped doing it when I got medicated, though. Mm. Yeah, it was really bad for me. I was doing it so much, like that people thought that they were on my page, but it was just the news feed. Mm. And it was like, oh my gosh, you're posting so much, I got I unfollow you. <laughs> <laughs> so when I came out on Facebook, I'm like, oh man, a lot of comedians don't know that I'm out, and then they're just gonna show up to an open mic one day, and it's like, why is why is Robert in a skirt? Like they don't even know that I'm Robin now, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's was, good. Yeah, it's good that they, you know, now you're, um, you're able to, you know, talk about it, you do comedy about it. Yeah. Do you feel like the transition has 
well, I'm sure it's changed your comedy. I don't know if you've, have you, has it changed your uh, style of comedy? No, my style has always been very uh, autobiographical. Mm-hmm. When I first started comedy, I was a virgin. Mm-hmm. So uh, my first four or five months, I just talked about, I'm 25 and I'm a virgin. Mm-hmm. And then my I met my girlfriend doing comedy and then we had sex. And then I lost my virginity, and we went to an open mic later that night. Mm-hmm. I just took my notebook and I threw it across the room, and I'm like, "Well, guys, I got no more material, you know." <laughs> and then I and then I did material about being Asian and being persecuted, whatever, you know, for mm-hmm. a while. And then um, I talked about just like my struggles of being a guy that's not doesn't fit in. Mm-hmm. And then I came out as transgender, a transgender woman, and I had to throw out all that material too. Yeah. Like every every time I did something different, I had to throw away a certain amount of material. Mm-hmm. So my style has always been just keeping up with whatever is going on with my life. Like, almost like my audience can follow along with me. Yeah. And your search to realize all of these different things about yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really also, like, when you are in comedy young, as we both are, where, and then, um, because I was pretty young when I started, so it's like, you discover who you are on the stage in a lot of ways. Absolutely. You know, you discover your life by talking about it. Yeah. Which I think is really, it's really important. Right. You know? Yeah, I am. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I should say this, but I'm getting kind of almost resentful that I came up with such a good transgender material. Because uh-huh. it's a lot of jokes about how I look and everything when, in the dress. And I look like a giant baby that found a dress, you know, like <laughs> things like that, you know, like it's very funny, like just things I've done for years now. And it's like now I'm getting kind of lazy. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like dressing up as much as I used to. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's like I went through the phases of being a girl, like in this, like I sped up. Yeah. You know, like I went through the junior high phase and the high school phase and the college phase and everything. And now I'm in the I don't want to dress up anymore phase. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I can't really do that if I show up to a mic mm-hmm. or a show because I have all my material is about how I look in a dress. Yeah. So yeah. I have to find a new phase in my stand up, I think. Well, I think it's really like it's like I definitely have that like femme fatigue. Yeah. When you Is that what it is? Yeah, it's it's like you just get tired of all of the aspects of femininity that require a lot of work, which yeah. is um getting dressed, makeup yeah. to a certain extent, but also um the fiddly aspects of it, you know, some things like sometimes, you know, women's clothes are uncomfortable it is very uncomfortable sometimes yeah i have one purple dress that's comfortable still and i wear it everywhere Mm -hmm. and everything else doesn't fit me anymore or just like it doesn't fit doesn't you know it doesn't feel good on my skin Mm -hmm. yeah i went from i can't wear to i can't wait to wear makeup to makeup is oppressive in like like four years and annoying it's like in your eyes and in your mouth and like i find it to be um it's hard to eat. It is with like a lipstick. Yeah, so like I've, I've like found out a way to like eat just using my teeth, mm-hmm. and I even do that now when I'm not wearing lipstick, just like as a as a habit, and I don't you're like used it. To it. Yeah, yeah, but it's also like, well, these are the trappings of femininity that define our gender, I guess. Right. But they don't really. I mean, these are just a certain kind of femininity. Yeah. You know, it's just a style, and that you know you're figuring out what it is you want to use, what it is you want to keep, you know, and what you don't have to do. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure it all out. It's good. Yeah. I, I think I'm just, I'm a very lazy girl, I think. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It's okay. I mean, that's a, definitely um, a style. And also, like, comedians in general, like, we don't want to put so much work into our appearance because then it seems forced. Like, our presence as entertainers is meant to be certainly somewhat casual i think yeah i think a very manicured groomed um dressed up comedian 
is suspect. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, because you're kind of like, oh, you know, I mean, I guess that that you can sort of argue like, well, it can be specifically branded like somebody like Joan Rivers, Mm -hmm. who put a tremendous amount of work and money into her appearance. Yeah. But and had the material to back it up. Right. You know, so there are definitely exceptions. But in general, like you sort of want comedians to be kind of like, I don't know, a little more accessible physically. I kind of like it. A little dirty, you mm-hmm. know, a little bit sloppy. Mm-hmm. I like I like my comedy like that. Yeah, me too. Because you want them to be like, I don't know. There's a familiarity. Yeah, with like comedian. like I feel like I'm at home watching mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I I, I never want to work that hard. Also, like if you're on the road a lot, it's really hard to actually like get it all together where you look great. You know, like I don't want to yeah. have to do all of that stuff. Yeah. Also, I don't know. I'm afraid to do the road. I've never done the road because mm. I don't think it's safe everywhere for trans people. It's hard. It can yeah. be. But I think like, well, where the, the capacity in that, you know, you're doing right now, like you just did Clusterfest, which is very, very big. Yeah. You know, and that's uh, San Francisco, which is, you know, I think it's great to be trans and, and Asian American it is. in San Francisco. Yeah. You know, um, and I think now the world is shifting. You know, we're we're going into a space of people have awareness about like violence against trans people. Yeah. So you know, you would, you should be safe. Yeah, I mean, San Francisco was like they were so welcoming. Mm-hmm. It was like one of the greatest. It might be the greatest crowd I've ever performed in front of. That's you know? awesome. Yeah, you come, <laughs> you walk out on stage, and they already assume that you're brave and stunning and everything. Yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. You're a hero, even though we don't even know you're a good person, but yeah. we're going to assume that you are. It's almost like almost condescending. That's how nice they are. Well, I think when you're coming on stage, also as an Asian American, yeah. there's immediate support because we haven't had that sort of presence sort of in comedy as acknowledged. Yeah. You know, we don't have that history in comedy as, you know, like these cis white guys have had, straight cis white guys have had for centuries, you know? Yeah. So when you're Asian American in San Francisco doing something very public and very big that is um, kind of mocking the establishment, you have a great vote of confidence from the people. Yeah. I, you know, I find that, you know, when I was in San Francisco, like just being an Asian American comedian, even before I transitioned when I'd go on stage, like, I almost got, like, like an advantage because the standards that people set were so low. They're like, oh, th- there's no way this person's going to be funny because they're Asian, <laughs> you know? So, like, you speak, <laughs> you, you do any joke that even resembles a joke, and they're like, oh, it's like this laugh of surprise. Like, yeah. someone's like, oh, my God, this person can talk and you put together <laughs> a thought, you know? It's very <laughs> insulting. for, mm-hmm. And I just had the chip on my shoulder for a while, I think. Like, yeah, Asian people could be funny. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, and we need to be, Yeah, we need to be. And I think it's really, and it's like important because comedy is really about, um, you know, you're kind of criticizing the establishment, you're criticizing the status quo and calling attention to certain things about it that are uncomfortable and bad. And, and so we need comedians, we need Asian American comedians desperately because we don't have that real mainstream acceptance or establishment as you know as such so we're sort of like minorities out there right yeah so it's good to have our voice in there yeah representation is so important it's so important and it's like you know i really i'm i'm excited about nowadays we're seeing a lot more asian american comedians and it's it's quite a commodity now yeah well it was for a while it was just you right Mm -hmm. you were the only one for like years or decades yeah decades so it's really exciting to yeah. see more people. I mean, I've told people this, like, before I saw Margaret on television, I didn't think it was possible for 
me to do stand up because no one no one looked like me. So mm-hmm. how could I ever do this for a living? And yeah. I, I wasn't just me. Other people in my class were like, oh, yeah, what about Margaret Cho? If she could mm-hmm. do it. I could do it. You yeah. know, and um, yeah, that's why it's so important. Yeah, because if you can see somebody do it, then you can you can visualize it for yourself. Yeah. You know, and I think that's it's so important. Um, I guess I didn't have examples. The only person that I can think of was like Johnny Yoon, who was a Korean comedian. He made a movie in the 70s called They Call Me Bruce. Oh. Might have been early 80s. And he was from South Korea. And I think he was kind of friends with Johnny Carson or something because he was actually on The Tonight Show a bunch. Oh, wow. I met him. He's a nice guy. He's like definitely very like a Korean older gentleman. Oh. So you don't sort of see that 70s like stand-up comic exactly now. But uh, it's it's really like it's amazing that that he existed, and so because he was there, I kind of thought, well, maybe I could try this. I don't know, right? Yeah. You know? Um, and when I first started comedy, I was immediately kind of supported by this industry that wanted different voices, right? You know, in San Francisco is that kind of place where they really welcome diversity. They always have. Oh wow! So that's yeah. where comedy was really it was it was a good thing to start with. Where did you start doing sets? Um, Orange County. Mm-hmm. There was an there was an Orange County comedy scene, mm-hmm. and there was a it was a a place called Max Blooms. It doesn't exist anymore. It's in Fullerton, and it was just this little coffee shop. I remember wondering if I could curse, you know. So I just kept calling, like, "Can I curse?" And I talk mm-hmm. about this and that. Can I curse on this podcast? Yes, or? yes, yes. Yeah. So I was just talking about like, oh, I'm just going to talk about masturbation a bunch. That's what <laughs> that's what most male comedians do when they yeah, start, yeah. right? And um, from the pictures, it looked like a club. I didn't know how comedy worked. Mm -hmm. So I got there and it was a coffee shop. And I'm thinking like, no one wants to hear about masturbation in a coffee shop, right? (laughs) And then when the open mic started, I was nervous, you know, and then every comic talked about masturbation. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is gross, but I guess like I can do it also. Mm -hmm. And and then when I had my first set, I guess my masturbation jokes were really good. And then I was just going to do it once and then quit. Yeah, and I ended up being really good at it, like my first set. And then mm. they're like, "Okay, just keep going." And then there was a guy named Evan. I still I'm still friends with him. And then he showed me all the other open mics around Orange County. Mm-hmm. Like there was a place called Paradise Perks and um, like Starlight Theater and just like these little places in Orange County. Mm-hmm. We created our own scene. And it wasn't until like I did Roast Battle that I started doing LA more in yeah. 2015. Yeah. Yeah. And Roast Battle is a very big deal. I mean, Roast Battle is a huge kind of franchise. It is, yeah. It's out there in every um, comedy festival and in television. And, you know, you really see a lot of it. And it's a tough thing. It is. Like, I would be scared. So what is your experience like doing that? Well, first of all, I, they call me Margaret Chode. <laughs> <laughs> Which the is com- the best. At the comedy store. Um, no, I did. Um, I, I've always loved roasting since I saw it when I was a kid. I saw Jeff Ross doing a set mm-hmm. at the Drew Carey roast. Oh, you did the Drew yeah. Carey roast too. Yeah, you mm-hmm. did haikus and stuff. I remember watching that thing and that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. I didn't know that you can express love through comedy mm-hmm. like that. And that was one of the first things I saw that I'm like, I actually want to do that for a living. Mm-hmm. And um, when I heard there was something called roast battle, I was like, okay, I'm all in, even though I'm kind of agoraphobic. I'll do that once and then I'll quit too. That's my, my whole life. <laughs> That's, is you like, like to do it one time. I and then like quit. to do one thing and then quit, you know, because I like to quit everything. Uh-huh. Um, and then I, I told my first joke um, at the roast battle against my friend Tim, and um, God, what was the joke? It was something like twelve steps is a program he'll never join and a distance he'll never run or something, uh-huh. <laughs> something uh-huh. like that. And then the crowd just went wow, like they, they started yeah. screaming and yelling and running around, you know, uh-huh. like. 
And I'm like, wow, that's a really addicting feeling. And then that mm-hmm. was when I was like, I need to just keep doing this to get that reaction again. Yeah. It's like a drug. Yeah. And then they, they showed me so much love in mm-hmm. a way, even though they were making fun of me. Mm-hmm. Like um, someone came up and gave me flowers afterwards, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like, you know, this is the, the perfect amount of making fun of me and showing me love. Because yeah. everything else, but when I first transitioned, it was either people were really mean to me or people were way too nice to me. Mm. People were afraid to make fun of me. And that yeah. was like a place where I'm like, look, you can still make fun of me as long as it's like respectful. Yeah. And that was why I, I did it. You know, I've been doing it for years now. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Because there's an element too of like fight club. Yeah, there is. Like eight mile fight club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of that stuff. Like survival of the fittest. Yeah. There. Would you ever do it? I don't know, you know, because it's to me, it's like, it, it seems like, though, that's it's for the young people. They oh, can really? think much faster and on their feet than I can, you know, um, and it's intimidating to me. So it kind of, I kind of think like, I do appreciate it. I've done like the judging oh, on yeah. it, um, which is, is really fun too. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think it's, it, I find it quite intimidating. So I really respect everybody that actually does it. Oh, okay. You know, it's really cool. Yeah. It's exciting to watch. It is. It's fun, and that the uh, the roasts in general from the Fires Club they were um, they were a little bit different in that it was mostly like comics just getting together. You know, in the uh, late eighties and early nineties, when I would go to the Fires Club, when they would have these sort of roasts for each other, they weren't televised. Right. They were like just so that the comics could get hang out, yeah. and they would like all like get excited about one comic coming down yeah. and doing a set and. Um, so it's great to see that camaraderie. Um, yeah. But in the Drew Carey roast, I, I was sitting next to Dom Irera, and we were also we were sitting in between um, uh, all these other people. But Joey Adams was there, who's this like really long time like columnist, old friar. He was in his nineties, and um, Joey walked back uh, behind the the dais that we were sitting on, and he fell through the the floor. Oh my god! And um, he was like laying there. He like fell like really hard and he was just out cold and um he later died from his injuries oh my god so we were going to be subpoenaed to do the civil suit against the friars club that i think um i don't know i think his wife at the time who was also a gossip columnist she was suing um the friars club but they ended up not i think they settled out of court but uh, that was the cra- the weird death at the roast oh, that happened. That's crazy. Of Joey Adams, which is really crazy. <laughs> so it's my memory of the one roast that I was at that somebody died. <laughs> so, so what made me want to do comedy is also <laughs> the venue where someone died. Yes. So, you know, yeah. it's lots of different experiences at the same place. It all comes full, full circle, yeah. Um, Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In this theme of death, which is what I wanted to talk to you about, so now we're going to do, you're, you're the first person that we're doing this. This is a, a segment of this podcast that I'm calling um, Mortal Minorities. Okay. And it's when Asian Americans kill. Okay. So it, this is like an interesting case that I wanted to discuss with you. It's a, it's a woman named Jennifer Pan, and um, she's a Vietnamese 
Canadian woman of Chinese-Vietnamese ancestry convicted of a 2010 kill-for-hire attack targeting both her parents. Oh, my God. So, and this was re- in response to what she deemed um, their seriously abusive tiger parenting. And um, I'm, I'm taking all this all out of Wikipedia. And at the, the front of this, it just says, um, the neutrality of this article is disputed. So we'll see what if where it's <laughs> where <laughs> okay. it's fair and where yeah. it's not. Um, did you grow up in a very oppressive household? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to, like, leave the house. Mm-hmm. That was, like, grounded forever. Like, you couldn't go out, like, after school or... No, like, if I, like, had drama after school, like, drama class, like... And I left at four, I got home at four instead of 2.30. My mom would like call the police. Mm. Like it was really, really bad. Because they were, what were they afraid of? I mean, were they afraid that. Uh, that I would be murdered. Oh, okay. And my mom would have dreams of me being murdered oh. and tell me about it. Like, so whenever I watch like television and it was like a white kid got grounded for a week, I'm like, you can g- get grounded for only a week. I've been grounded for like 10 years now. Yeah, <laughs> like your whole that, life. Yeah, I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. Like, I think it it's, but it was motivated by their own fear of yeah. the world. Right. You know, so was your mother at home with you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I still, I still kind of have a little bit of the agoraphobia. Like when I leave, yeah. leaving the house is really hard for me. Well, because if they're raising you to believe that you're living in an unsafe world. That's right. It's that, that's definitely scary. My first therapy session, he said their death is not around every corner. And I started crying. Mm-hmm. And this is like a, two months ago. I'm 33 now. Mm-hmm. And it's still like that. Yeah. It really messed me up. Yeah. Because it's like, of course, it's like you only find out about the world from your parents. Yeah. So how would you even know that? to question them like you know yeah it's like all these beliefs that we have really come from them yeah you know because with my family the thing is is like when i was growing up they were just not there because they were working oh okay so in the 70s they they didn't have a sense of like um oh we need to be home with our kids like we need a babysitter oh wow. like they were like oh they're fine <laughs> they'll be fine <laughs> that's messed up in its own way I think. yeah <laughs> so the, to... it was isolating it was like yeah. i just grew up in an empty house oh my gosh which um is you know, it, it is scary in its own way, but now I really prefer to be alone yeah. all the time. It's kind of like I have some um, whatever. It's like that kind of thing of like being with other people is really taxing. Yeah. You know, and so it, it has it, it has left its mark yeah. of like now it's made me kind of a permanent loner. Yeah. No, I get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of have a little bit of that, too. I'm yeah. codependent on like one person, which is my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. But yeah, people are very taxing for me because I don't have a lot of experience outside talking to people. Right. Yeah. So, of course, it's going to require a lot of energy. Yeah. To deal with the outside world when you're sort of feeling like I've got to be combative. Yeah. I might have to fight. Right. <laughs> Um, so I mean, with with Jennifer Pan, it's um it's a, it's a kind of thing of like where I understand like her parents really valued education, so she wasn't really able to do anything except school, and they really made sure that you know she had really great grades, and that was a big part of her upbringing is that they were very strict with her, and um, they wanted her to be amazing in school, like most Asian American parents right. are, or Asian parents are that way. Yeah. You know, like they just have a huge emphasis on education and your um, ability to perform in school is really related to how much they're going to love you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had that, too. Yeah. So they um, they were this, I think, upwardly mobile to a certain extent. Um, They were in Toronto. They were living in um, sort of a, a suburb of Toronto 
where uh, they had um, a two-car garage, mm-hmm. which is a big deal for Asian people to have a two-car <laughs> garage, and they had a Lexus and a Mercedes-Benz. Oh, wow. And $200,000 in Canadian money and savings. Oh, my gosh. And Jennifer's parents set a lot of goals for her. Um, she was taking piano lessons very young, as well as figure skating lessons very young. Um, so, the, you know, the, the emphasis of achievement was right. always kind of put down to that. Her, um, her father, uh, Han, was considered a classic tiger dad, tiger mm-hmm. mom, tiger dad, that Han was the dad. And Bic, the mom, Bic is the um, re- reluctant accomplice. Okay. So I guess maybe one's parent is stronger and one's weaker. So do you think your mother was stronger? Yeah. I mean, my dad was like always gone partying and stuff. So it was mm-hmm. mostly my mom raising me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the sort of it's usually sort of one parent that sort of drives that sort of tiger yeah. strictness. Yeah. Um, no, we sort of think of the tiger mom, but yeah, I think with my parents it was really more of like um, they were both so busy that they didn't have a chance to like assign who was going to be the tiger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So they, but the in 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 Jennifer Pan's case, it was it was really her dad that was was trying to push for it. You know, she attended Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School where she played flute and um, they never permitted her to date boys or to attend high school dances or proms out of fear that these activities would distract her from academic commitments. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. So she was just like very isolated and having to just do school. And um, she says, Jennifer Pan says, at age 22, she had never gone to a club, been drunk, visited a friend's cottage, or gone on vacation without her family. Well, by 22, you would think you would have been able to do at least a couple of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never visited a friend's cottage. Cottage, yeah. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I don't know anybody who lives in a cottage. <laughs> it's That's also kind of like, I mean, that's very typical of Asian Americans. It's like we don't get, we're not drink, like we're not supposed to get drunk. Yeah, you're not supposed to date. And then uh, it's weird with Asians from, like Asian parents for me, like, you're not supposed to date. You're not supposed to date. And then all of a sudden one day you're like, why aren't you married? Yeah. It's like, where are you supposed to like suddenly just be married? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you have no experience of the opposite sex or yeah. any any sex, yeah. any relationship. Yeah. Like, how do you just get married? Right. Yeah. I was like, n- don't date until like 23 or 24. And then all of a sudden I'm 25 and they're like, you need to date someone now. Yeah. Like now. Without any experience beforehand. Yeah. So it's so crazy, like what they want. Like my my parents, their version of it is, you have to eat, you have to eat, you have to eat. Why are you so fat? <laughs> my, my my mom's like that too. Yeah, it's like how do you <laughs> how do you like shove food down your yeah. kid's throat and then question the fatness? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're but enabling it. It's just the blind spot. Yeah. Um. So with Jennifer, despite her parents' high expectations, her grades were average in the seventy percent range okay you know which i i've been around there yeah me too i'm like a c student i had i had a 0.9 gpa my first semester of uh, uci Mm. and i was on academic probation Mm -hmm. and in a way it was good because it was like it lowered the standards of my parents so much Mm. they're like okay just get c's (laughs) yeah (laughs) like stop getting f's and d's you know yeah like yeah that's i mean yeah with my parents too they were like disappointed so early that they just learned not to count on me exactly (laughs) which is i think the best way to handle it yeah me too so with jennifer multiple times she forged report cards using false templates to show her parents that she had received straight a's oh my god she had not i mean that's ballsy yeah i would be too scared 
Yeah, I'm impressed. She's a lot smarter than her grades. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, to it's it's like actually probably harder to do that yeah. to to do a, a convincingly forged document. Yeah, than to, to actually get straight A's. Yeah, I mean, it shows a kind of um, intelligence that you know she if she had applied that to school. Yeah, I don't know. Jennifer failed calculus class in her senior year of high school, and Ryerson University rescinded her early admission. As she could not bear to be perceived as a failure, she began to lie to those she knew, including her parents, and pretended that she was attending university. Wow. That's, it's a huge commitment to a charade. Like, I'm going <laughs> to go to this school. Right. And the, all the time you have to be out yeah. to make that seem convincing. That's scary. Instead, she sat in cafes, taught as a piano instructor, and worked in a restaurant to earn money. In order to maintain the charade, Jennifer told her parents that she had won scholarships, later falsely claiming that she had accepted an offer into the pharmacology program at the University of Uh Toronto. Wow, this is so involved. I mean, the big lies. Yeah. They get bigger and bigger as you go on because you could just, you know, you're just delaying the inevitable. (laughs) Right. Because, you know, you're going to have to fess up. At some point, yeah, there needs to be evidence that you're actually doing all this stuff, right? Well, she's she's trying to build evidence like she went to the extent of purchasing secondhand textbooks and watching videos related to pharmacology in order to create notebooks full of purported ca- class notes. Oh, my God. That she would show her parents. Yeah. Jennifer also requested permission from her parents to stay near the campus with a friend throughout the week. Oh, wow. I mean, it's like the, the amount of lying yeah. to sustain it, 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 it gives me anxiety. Yeah. Like, I'm like scared. Yeah. Um, she, she was actually staying with her boyfriend, uh, Daniel Chikwang Wong, um, her high school sweetheart who her parents didn't know anything about. And uh, he he was a student, but uh, he also had bad grades. So, you know, they, they were, um, I guess, commiserating yeah. with this, this thing, that feeling. Yeah. So while pretending to complete her degree at University of Toronto, Pan told her parents she had started working as a volunteer at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children, known as Sick Kids. Yeah. Um, so Han and Bick became suspicious when they realized she did not have a hospital ID badge or uniform. Oh, no. That's what she forgot. She forgot. Like, I think she got cocky. Yeah. <laughs> like, she got cocky, like, kind of like when it's like she settled into the lie to yeah. the point where she was like, oh, they're going to believe it. Yeah. I guess that would make sense because it's like if they're, they're buying all of this, they're going to buy all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, her parents are really perceptive. Yeah. That's I mean, all it took. They, they if, I guess if they start to think, I mean, of course, there's like something to say, like, well, if they had an investment in believing her. Yeah. Because then they wouldn't have to realize that their daughter's a liar. Yeah. And has been lying all this time. Yeah. But uh, since they were suspicious on one occasion, Bick followed her daughter to work. And quickly discovered her deception. Oh, no. So that, that, that the jig is up. And in the state of shock, Han, wanted, the dad, wanted to throw Jennifer out. But the mother persuaded him to allow her to stay. She um, eventually had to try to begin working to finish high school for real. Yeah. Because she hadn't. And was later encouraged by her parents to apply to a university. She was forbidden to contact her boyfriend, Daniel, um, and couldn't go anywhere so it's basically oh, no. house arrest, except for her piano teaching job. Oh, my God. So by 24, Jennifer was sick of it. And she, um, you know, wasn't able to see Daniel. So he began to date another woman yeah. who he fell in love with. So it says Pan quickly invented a new story and told 
Daniel, the boyfriend, that a man had entered her house showing what appeared to be a police badge. Okay. Um, she then told him that several men had rushed in and gang raped her. Oh my God. Oh, wow. And after this, she insisted that a bullet was mailed to her telling Daniel that it was sent to her from his new girlfriend. Oh my so God. she's just a liar. She's yeah, just trying to like... That's like a pathological liar. That's like, now you're getting... I mean, all of it's pathological. Like, all of it's like so... You could... I could kind of understand like the parent stuff because I know yeah. what it is to be living in that sort of restrictive environment. Right. And you just want to lie so that you could just live your life. Yeah. But this now... This is way, <laughs> way too far, I It's think. showing the personality that could kill somebody. Yeah. You know, and justify it. Absolutely. Um, so in the spring of 2010, Pan was in contact with uh, Andrew Montemayor, a high school friend who she claims had boasted in their high school years about robbing people at, at Knife Point. So Montemayor introduced her to another kid, Ricardo, a goth, who Pan gave $1,500 to kill her father in the parking lot at his workplace. Duncan says that she once gave him $200 for a night out, but that he returned it, and that he rebuffed her when she asked him to kill her parents. So it's kind of harder to find somebody. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you ask sort of the bad kids that you know around, that you think of her as bad. <laughs> yeah. But nobody's going to be as seriously bad as to kill. Yeah. I didn't know that's how much it costs to kill somebody. Yeah, that's kind of cheap. Yeah, I thought it would be a lot higher than that. You would think so. Yeah. So Pan and Wong, the boyfriend, were back in contact at this time, and according to the, to the police, came up with a plan to hire a professional hitman for $10,000 to oh, kill her you, parents. That's that's go. where that's where you get the money. Um, so calculating that if they died, that she would inherit $500,000. Oh, wow. Which, which they planned to move in together. And uh, so Daniel, the boyfriend, connected her with Lenford Roy Crawford, who he called Homeboy. He gave her a SIM card and an iPhone so she could contact him without using her regular cell phone. So now they're sort of like, now they're using the burner phones and they're learning to sort of maybe try to cover their tracks. Yeah, she's like a, an agent, like a secret agent or yeah, something. She's, yeah, now she's getting into this this sort of thing of like, okay, well, let's really do this. Yeah. So this whole thing is like kind of building up. So the murder actually took place at the Pan House. Uh, November 8th, 2010, Jennifer Pan unlocked the front door of the family home when she went to bed. Shortly after, uh, another, oh, so, so they, they ended up hiring a different hitman. I can't even say the name. It's Mil, Milva Ganam. Milva, anyway, some dude. <laughs> <laughs> and two other people came in to the unlocked door carrying guns. They, I guess they didn't establish the, the identity of the other two hitmen because the boyfriend and the, the Crawford guy, they were at work. So it, it's uh, different people, different players here. So these three men... Uh, took the parents, Bick and Han, to the basement where they shot them multiple times. Oh, wow. Bick, the mom, was killed, but Han, the dad, would survive his wounds. The three men uh, took all the cash that was in the house, including $2,000 from Jennifer, and they left. Jennifer claimed that they had tied her up, but that she managed to free her hands and dial 911. Han, the dad, was treated at the hospital, and he was moved to the trauma unit by aircraft, some serious, serious injuries. Um, the evening after the murder... Pan uh, Jennifer went underwent her first in interview with the police, and uh, she was arrested during her third interview. Um, during that interview, uh, she admitted she had hired killers, but stated that she hired them to kill her. Oh wow! Um, the police didn't yeah didn't really uh, <laughs> buy it, but they told her that they had computer software that could analyze untruths in statements. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so they're all doing some lying too. Yeah, right. 
in getting her. Yeah, they're better liars than she is. <laughs> they're better liars. I mean, you, you got to be a pretty pretty bad liar. Yeah. But, you know, so she's she's arrested. Uh, the um, guy that, I guess, did the shooting was arrested. Malva Gainam uh, was arrested. So they all went to trial. Um, they all pleaded not guilty to the charges of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Um, but, you know, they looked at all of the, I think it's like text messages and all of them, you know, as, including 100 messages sent between Pan and Wong and the, uh, Jennifer and Daniel yeah. in the six hours prior to the killing. <clears throat> you know, it, it, I think that it, the major problem with it was that, you know, is that, that Jennifer was not assaulted, not blindfolded, not taken to the basement, not shot. Yeah. And the dad was alive. Right. So he, he was there to, wit, you know, give witness to it. Yeah. So they, you know... They were, um, they were guilty. Yeah. Uh, Pan is, uh, as of two, 2016, Pan is serving her sentence at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario. Um, Wong, the boyfriend, Daniel, is also in prison at Collins Bay Institution in Kingston. Um, the other shooter, one of the shooters, Mel Vaganam, is in Atlantic Institution in New Brunswick, all these British Columbia places. The media reaction is that it sent shockwaves across Canada and the Asian diaspora. Don't the, it's sort of like Asian Asians all over. Oh yeah, be yeah, freaking yeah. out, right? Because it's like, you know, I could see that you could s- almost justify it as like, is she kind of folk hero yeah. to stand up to yeah. the the t- tyranny yeah. of that kind of an upbringing? I mean. It's like she's kind of like a brilliant sociopath, right? Yeah, I mean it's nasty too. It's like because you 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 see like part of her journey is like I really recognize those feelings of hopelessness and helplessness growing up in a fiercely driven Asian family, right? You know, I think there's other ways to get out of it though. There's other ways. I mean, you <laughs> I could mean, just like I'm not go I'm not going to school. Yeah, like I'm gonna get a job. Exactly. It's like. Bye. Let me live with uncle and auntie or whatever, you know? I think that the moment she lied about getting gang raped is like when it's like, you can't really justify this anymore. No. You know, I have a thing where I have a real hatred of Mm anti-heroes. And I think they're portrayed a lot on television nowadays where it's like, this person's justified and they're evil, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think like, yeah, you can can say that uh, there's a lot of oppression and there's like, even systemic oppression, but it doesn't warrant like a death sentence right and like the parents didn't deserve that you know like uh and i'm and i'm saying like um is it admirable you know like is it admirable or whatever you know i I can see some people like really looking up to her Mm -hmm. because what she did was she um shattered some expectations of what asian people are capable of right right like she might be like the first asian sociopath Mm mm-hmm and uh, people might look up to that. Yeah. You know, like people like write jail, write letters to people in jail and fall in love with them and stuff. Right. I, bet, I bet you she has a lot of that. Yeah. I, well, I recognize a lot of myself in her. Yeah. Like I recognize those feelings of complete like rage at right. the way that I was raised and anger at the parents. And like I, but I see now as an adult looking back, it was all in my best interest. Yeah. They just wanted me to have a chance in life. Yeah. Well, I think you can look at it both ways. I think you can look at it like they were horrible and she was also really bad. Mm -hmm. But she was worse than they were. Yeah. Yeah. As like, you know, at least their intentions were good. Mm -hmm. But I I do think um, a lot of Asian parents like should really chill out a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) You know, let your kid have a little fun. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a pretty horrible story. (laughs) It's a horrible story, but it's like such a, to me, I find it really compelling because it's like, Oh, it's wow. very, com- yeah, it's very compelling. Yeah, you know, like oh, here's somebody who just stood up 
against it. And of course, she's a sociopath. And of course, there is something definitely wrong mentally happening. Yeah. But how much is that like created by her parents, like the strictness, the oppressive nature of growing up in a household like that? Yeah. You know, what's really like what sounds really kind of ironically sad about the whole thing is that. She seems brilliant. Mm-hmm. Like the the amount of lying that that takes and everything and, and like having to think of more lies and having to like figure out where you're going to be during those lies mm-hmm. and everything. It takes a lot of intelligence. Yeah. So I think if her parents kind of chilled out a little bit and like raised her in a different way, she could have been a different person. Yeah. Not just maybe not getting good grades, but like being successful in something. Yeah. And I wish that that would have happened instead. I know. Yeah. It's like the um, the the intensity of like the compartmentalization. Yeah. Like you can just do, you can sort of do so much if you can create that many spaces in your brain. Yeah. And occupy that kind of like all those personalities and what, you know, what is possible, like what's possible for her. Yeah. I mean, like I'm a bad, I'm a terrible liar, you mm-hmm. know, and I am. Um, like my life fall apart pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I did something similar where I told my parents that I um I was a theater major and they said you got to quit being a theater major you'll never make money. Mm-hmm. So they made me an English major. Mm-hmm. They're like what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'm like I'm going to be a teacher and I'm going to get my teaching credentials. Yeah. And I just told them that and I never took a single class for mm-hmm. for my teaching credentials. Mm-hmm. And then one day they were like do you what about your classes for your teaching credentials? And after like two questions i just went i've been lying to you for six years like i just, oh, I just fell yeah. apart yeah. yeah yeah i wasn't i wasn't like her yeah where i had these like long involved like lies and everything i don't know how people do it it's hard yeah. it's really hard i'm like a really bad liar because everything it sounds like i'm asking a question i'm like if you, did you do this mm-hmm. it's all my voice is good mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. like my voice starts to like it's really squeaky yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> it's like really, it's hard to lie. Also, I'm dumb, so I like really yeah. can't remember anything. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, because you have to be smart to be a good liar. Yeah. Yeah, you I'm have like, to keep up with everything, consistent stories and everything. Yeah. I'm like such a stoner, too. Like, oh, I'm not a stoner anymore, but I was. So, like, my memory, its capacity is like terrible. So, that combined well, former stoner and menopause, I'm like a walk, like an etch, etch a sketch. If I walk around, it just erases it. Yeah. Shakes it all down. <laughs> That's funny. So dumb. Um, well, thank you. No, that was excellent. We did that for our very first Mortal Minorities. <laughs> and where can people see you? So we are doing a show together. You and I are doing a show at Largo at on Largo. Aug- yeah. August 9th. Yeah, that's my next big show. Yeah. After Clusterfest, it wasn't like I haven't really booked any big shows after that. Yeah. Well, this is uh, this is going to be another big show. And then, it's, and then it's we'll be do more. It's going to be a really big one. Yeah. Lots and lots more. I love Largo. It's one of my favorite places to perform. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really awesome. It's going to be a good one. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Never miss an episode of The Margaret Show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Margaret Show is an Erios production with editing by Kat Hong and original music by Garrison Starr. Powered by ACAST. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.